Hello, readers. Joe Madden is a three-time Manager of the Year award winner in Major League Baseball, whose 19 years as a skipper in the majors includes taking the Tampa Bay Rays to their first ever World Series and managing the Chicago Cubs to their first World Series championship in 106 years. And he's just released a new book about his life and a whole lot more. It's called The Book of Joe, Trying Not to Suck at Baseball and Life. Joe, thank you so much for the time. How you doing today? Good, thank you. Appreciate it. Where am I? Where am I calling? Where are you, where are you at? Austin, Texas. You ever been here? I have not. You know what? That's crazy. That's one place I wanted to go to. I've so many times driven my RV from uh, Tampa to Arizona, get on ten, go through San Antonio, and say I'm one of these. I'm just going to, you know, drive on up to Austin. I never did it. I wanted to go to Marfa also, just to drive through Marfa. I thought that'd be kind of interesting too, but I didn't do it. I didn't do it. So well, and I sold my RV. If you're gonna drive through Marfa, you got to hang out there for a couple of days and get into yeah. the uh, world of the Mar Marfonians. Yeah, I've been. I read all about it. I saw the um, uh, there was a show on uh, 60 Minutes one night about it a couple of years ago, and that's what got me attached. And I just, you know, when you're when you're driving that far, the thought sounds great until you're driving that far, and <laughs> you just want to get where you're going. And that's what happens every time. Well, especially on I-10. I mean, that's obviously such a long drive. And you get to that point of desolation Correct. once you get through the Texas Hill Country where you understand why Hollywood is filming movies that are supposedly on other planets in that part of the world. Because it's, I mean, it's just not, it is not uh, compatible with most life. Agreed. Uh, and But the, maybe the redeeming quality is you can go 80 miles an hour there without worrying about it. Right. The 80 mile an hour. I love the 80 mile an hour speed limit signs. I think they've actually bumped it up to 85 now, too. Really? Sweet. Right. OK, yeah. my van, my van is almost done. I have a 76 Dodge van. It maybe at some point I'll be adventurous enough to drive that across, which would be easier. I think I might. That's probably the better thought. So there's lots of different things that we find out about you in this book, Joe. But the book's not necessarily just about you. I love it. And I think it's very befitting of the type of person that you are because it's part autobiography. It is part history lesson, sometimes history lessons that have very little to do with you. And it's also part philosophy on leadership and on life as well. When you and uh, Tom Verducci really started putting this project together, was this what you had in mind or is this ultimately what it became as you were really working through uh, this pro uh, project? You nailed it. That's exactly what we had wanted. Um... It was going to be overarching, uh, comparing and contrasting managing, managing styles or managers from the 1980s to present time and how it has changed so much. And then with it, within that, I've, I've never wanted to just do an autobiography or a biography regarding just, you know, how I grew up and where I lived and all that other kind of stuff. I didn't want that. I wanted it to be more than that. I've always thought that. Um, so in 2008, I was first approached to do something like this when I was with the race. We went to the World Series, but I knew it wasn't time. I wasn't complete enough at that point so go to the world series one with the cubs here comes 19 uh you depart uh ways and i got i saw tommy we talked about it and it was just the perfect time to also include the philosophical component and then the leadership component and you're right i mean um you know sometimes you you get self-deprecating and you don't want to put it out there but the, the madnisms the little chapters uh titles each chapter have some meaning to them and they're all mine i mean it's that's that's the part that i've uh you know, there's probably a little plagiarism involved there somewhere, just unintentionally. But that's that's how I used to build my uh, messaging to the players based on those kind of thoughts. That's the T-shirts, reminders, uh, fun stuff. 
um, that helps to build and remind. So your evaluation's right on. Why are those slogans so important when it comes to getting a message across, Joe? Because obviously uh, you have the try not to suck from the Chicago Cubs era and plenty of others. And as you said, the each chapter is titled with a uh, different phrase that you have utilized throughout your life, sometimes personally, sometimes professionally and helping to get through to other people. Right. And it started in the 80s. Um, I was in charge of the Angels minor league system and I was always... Um, I guess bothered by it to a certain extent where I didn't think people really understood how much every day counted, whereas that could be the day of the epiphany. <laughs> and you, and if you uh, backed off on your instruction or the player backed off on his ability to receive, you might miss that moment. So my first t-shirt was every day counts. And uh, for that reason, that's exactly what I'm talking about from a baseball perspective. You don't want to lose that moment that the light bulb just goes on and understand every day you go out there to talk to a player, that might be the light bulb day. So it started with that. Um, I even, even did my, uh, I got loud t-shirts when I used to drove into a city. It was a screaming baseball for the hitter. They didn't get the most hits, but hit the ball the hardest. I was ahead of the uh, exit velocity curve, the loudness. And then all the others that you saw. Um, when my first in, in Tampa that I still love is uh, tell me what you think, not what you've heard no regurgitation uh it it gets to the point where people just repeat narratives uh original thought their ability to take well okay i hear that but what, what do i really think about that and get a little bit deeper on your own level i don't think it happens often enough i think we were regurgitators and i was really working against that baseball and i'm defending the history of baseball and the fundamentals but sometimes uh thoughts are passed from one generation to the other without considering that it might actually be taught better or it might be the wording might be moved around to make it even more um, advantageous to the group. So that was the crux of that. So that kept building and kept building and try not to suck was the one that sold the most. And, and that one really, um, you know, it's still on the walls in Chicago. We did not suck. So it's very cool. It's very cool. And, and my favorite might be do simple better because we're all looking for convoluted answers in this world. And, and to me, um, wow, it just reduced, reduced, reduced. If you get in a hot moment, if things like athletically, let's say, and it's going to be difficult or tough, whatever. You're not going to remember all this crap. You got to have a nugget or two that 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 could bring you back in the moment right now. Oh yeah, and that and that that one thought triggers about fifteen or twenty other thoughts without you having to activate them. It just happens. So that's what I'm into. Well, I understand why "Try Not to Suck" resonates so much. Not only because of the successes that it helped to bring about, but also there's like a humorous element to it. The one that really does sure. resonate with me is tell me what you think, not what you heard, especially in this day and age where it's so difficult for people to be present because we're constantly staring at these little screens with flashing lights and really not thinking about things all that deeply anymore versus letting these technologies really tell us how to feel and think. Amen. hundred percent. Right on. I'm with you hundred percent on that. So it shouldn't be surprising to anybody that you were surrounded by a bunch of great leaders growing up. Who exactly was Bob Root and what uh, impact did he have in your leadership style? See, I was actually a football player first and uh, from Northeastern Pennsylvania. And I, I listen, I had some tough coaches here now. I'm in, I'm not far from the coal mines. And I love that. I, I lived that close to the coal mines. Both grandparents started there. Uh, Bob Root was at Lafayette college. Bob Root was a retired, uh, great football coach from Phillipsburg. New Jersey is my quarterback coach. And I've always, I mean, I had, like I said, these tough guys and I love the tough guys because they made me tougher. Uh, 
but I wanted to be communicated with. I wanted to be spoken to. I didn't want to be anybody getting upset with me for making a dumb decision, right? When I got to Lafayette, uh, Coach Root, God, he was so good at explaining things. And and if I, my thoughts mirrored his in, in conversation, wow, validation from Coach Root. Um, so I thought he's the one that that taught me uh, respect through communication as, as opposed to attempt at respect through intimidation. That was all Coach Root. Now, I've had some great coaches before then, obviously after. But Bob, Coach Bob Root, indelible impression on me. It culminated with last touchdown pass against Lehigh. I, I called the play on my own, come to the sidelines, and he told me I'd have done exactly the same thing. Wow, Coach Root. Right. So uh, you uh, do talk about your baseball journey, not only as a skipper, of course, but also as a player. Uh, you end up getting into baseball, uh, ultimately mm -hmm. catch the eye of uh, an angel scout who yeah. takes you in, play minor league baseball for several years, but it wasn't exactly linear, you going from player to baseball coach. So what exactly happened to get you into the coaching side of the sport? Uh, just the fact that I wasn't good enough to play it, you know, and uh, the, the guy you're talking about is Nicky Kamzik. He was a, a famous scout, funny little guy. But I, I'm playing for three, three and a half years, and, you know, your body breaks down. I mean, I I did not have the body for all that either to be able to replicate uh, the throwing motion, hitting motion, like an everyday major league player can. So everything starts breaking down. And then Lake Christopher comes up. Lake Christopher is one of the best scouts ever. Comes up and asks me one day, "When are you going to stop playing and start coaching?" I was so I was pissed at him. I was angry. What do you mean? I'm 23, 24 years old. But anyway, he was right. And then um, so then Larry Himes recognized that in me. Called me on the eve of, of Thanksgiving in 1980 when I had this recent offer to go to Italy to play baseball. Now just think when you're that at that age on your own, Italy play baseball, Angels start new career. And thankfully, I was mature enough to realize that the Angels had a greater opportunity to stick. So I chose it. It was not, it was not an easy decision, but that's where it all began. And then I get to 1981 and become a scout and a minor league manager. And I'm, and I'm taught by Larry Himes, who's to me one of the best, another great scout, taskmaster man. Man, if you didn't have a good answer to his questions, you got your butt chewed on really hard. And I, and I love all that. I love the fact that I had Bob Roots of the world, Larry Himes of the world, Adam Siminski's of the world, Richie Rabbits is Jackson. I had all these, this different group of coaches coming at you from different angles, but all wanted to make you better. So you shared a, a thought in this book that has to do mm -hmm. with talking to other big time coaches who have won championships at the highest level and a question that you would want to ask them. And you really provide your answer in an interesting way as well. And that question is whether it's like a Bill Belichick or a Phil Jackson, or let's be honest, a Joe Madden, is if you could go back to any one championship in your career, what would that be? And for you, it's a difficult decision between that Cubs ship and uh, in the uh, middle part of this latter decade and also a championship that happened in 1982 when you were managing the Salem Angels for the Northwest yeah. League Championship. Why exactly that one? That's a first. Um, that was your first. And um, it's so pure. That I, I mean, you're, you're, you just say that. I'm just thinking about the celebration afterwards. I'm thinking about how I challenged a writer after a game in Medford early in the season because he was making fun of my, my team. Uh, you know, you do some things instinctively. I mean, I can't, you can't threaten. 
and a writer. I didn't know that when I was 27. And the league president gets on me and he was a good dude. And he told me, listen, you can't do that. He find me, I think like maybe 25 bucks. Um, but when you go through that moment, it's, it's all relative. That was, that was my world series. My first, uh, my second year managing uh, a really good team, a lot of good young players. But when you celebrate a championship, whether it's versus the Medford days, and then eventually, yes, the Cleveland Indians, which is obviously uh, extraterrestrial in a sense. But uh, that first time you do something like that, everything you thought is validated. And there was a bunch of young guys there and they were like so thrilled. It's hard. I mean, it's, See, with first-time eyes, feel with first-time passion. That was the first championship that I was involved in as a manager, and it'll always stick. Why is struggling so important, Joe, not just in sports but also in life? <clears throat> you don't learn otherwise. Um, you know, it's, it's, that's, that's the learning moment. That's the teachable moment. That's the one that, that molds you, forms you, uh, makes you think, uh, makes you be creative, makes you be innovative. It's just, it just does. I mean, when everything's, are go everything's going well, it takes a, a really strong-minded individual to understand that, but then also try to branch out and realize, okay, it's going well right now. Uh, how do I prevent it from going badly? But when you're going through some difficult moments, man, um, it, it brings out every part of you. I think it brings out the best in you. Um, and, and when you do eventually realize your success, wow, you really appreciate it way more than uh, something that has been earned as opposed to just presented or given completely different process. So, uh, I've always talked to my kids about it. I used to always tell them, listen, enjoy the struggle. They look at me like, what are you, nuts? <laughs> and then, and then, no, you have to understand, again, that's where growth occurs. So um, I hope people understand that, that uh, that is where growth occurs. And that's where you're going to become who you are. And eventually, when you look back, to think that you've earned something from A to Z is a pretty wonderful feeling. Yeah, honestly, it's the part you telling your kids about it that jumped out to me in that chapter. I've got an eight, six-year-old at home right now, and that's something that I try and talk to them about. And I worry that their life is a little bit too easy at times because sometimes uh, the, the seemingly most trivial things uh, just tear them to pieces. But I try to help them out and tell them, look, it's important to examine all avenues of something that you're trying to accomplish, something you're trying to do, or a situation that you're in to understand that it may not always go swimmingly. And when it goes the worst, that's the most important time to be paying attention. And it's also important, Joe, to make sure not to allow yourself to get too high or low uh, based on a given situation. That's not to say you can't show any emotion, but you can't let those things dwell because one way or the other, that leads to complacency too. Great. Uh, the power of 24 hours in it with the, with my teams, I had one, I'm, I'm very, I'm not big on rules at all. I'm, I'm not a rules kind of a guy. Um, I believe the more freedom given the greater respect and discipline returned. Um, so I was not ever a rules kind of a guy. So I, I kind of leave it uh, open ended like that for the team. I'm not talking about like we're saying like six or seven, seven year old kids. It's, it's grownups, professionals. And I found that to really uh, help a lot. The fact that uh, they know they know that uh, if you just stay within a certain range, and and I've, I've oftentimes I've often um, began talks to my players by saying, I don't have to tell you the difference between right or wrong. I, I, you know that you already know that there's a compass within every one of us, regardless of where you come from. You know what's right and what's wrong. I always say choose right. That's 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 how I uh, speak to my guys normally. Um, and it's true. Um, so you, you get to these difficult moments. Absolutely. The struggle does occur. 
but in deep down, I think uh, just as a human being, we know what is right and what is wrong. And with my players, I just ask them, choose right. And, and if we do, this is going to work out pretty well. That's right. As uh, Camus said that you uh, posted on the walls of yeah. the Tampa Rays clubhouse, integrity has no need of yeah. rules. Why is Kenny Grant the hardest player that you ever had to release uh, in 1989? Love Kenny Grant. I mean, my buddy, Donnie Long, we were just texting the other day. He, was, he, gave, he gave me a Donnie, uh, Kenny Grant story that made me laugh. Kenny was just the nicest kid in the world from uh, Patterson, New Jersey, but really talented. And actually, if you look back at his numbers that he compiled, had he done them in today's game, this guy would have gone a lot further because the the uh, eye at the plate, the uh, the ability to not uh, expand the strike zone was really important. He had a great arm, but he had this great laugh, looked you right in the eyeballs, and I just loved the kid. I just did. Um, so there was you, – you, you work and you invest so much time with the player as a coach um, – I was a hitting coach. I was, I, I ran everything there. I was the coordinator. So um, as a hitting coach, you spend a lot of time with young players and Kenny listened all the time and Kenny worked hard and Kenny always played at hundred percent, hundred percent of the time. And just, you just fall in love with some kids, you know? And so when I had to tell him he was gone, I cried. That was at the, in the office at Geonotry park in Mesa where I, I had this little hole in the wall office there and I have to tell Kenny that, wow. Uh, it was devastating to me. I know, he took it a lot better than I did. Hmm. But when you get really attached to a player, a kid like that, that you believe is really sincere. And you also know that his alternatives after that didn't look strong. I didn't know what Kenny might do after that. When he got home, I haven't seen him since. I think he's still around. I'd love to visit with him again, but really talented. And I was really disappointed. I couldn't help him more because I really thought this guy had an opportunity to play in the big leagues. The legendary Gene Mock paid you one of the best compliments you ever received. What was it, and how did it impact you as a skipper going forward? Well, he walked up to me the one day, and uh, I'm just running the instructional league. Hmm. <laughs> and you have to understand Gene. Gene was like the wind. He would show up, and then he'd be gone. He didn't even realize he was gone. I'm just throwing batting practice. I'm doing my thing, and he walks up to me, and he says, you've created a great atmosphere around here. <laughs> and I thought, what is he talking about? I said, thank you. And he walked away and that I went home that night and I tried to figure out what, what was Gene talking about today? Because if he recognizes that, and I don't know how it happened, I was concerned that I couldn't replicate it again. So I did, I went home and I thought about it that night and eventually it morphed into more thoughts. And what it came down to, I thought was relationship building communication. The fact we all trusted one another. Uh, we did exchange ideas openly. Nobody was afraid to say anything. And eventually, um, constructive criticism is a good thing and it matters and you have to have thick skin in our game and our us as a staff we were great but the greatest arguments in the world awesome nobody held back you know you we were never disrespectful but you always argued your point this is really gone in today's game and in clubhouses and coaches rooms it's that that real strong argument possibly because everybody's i think really then was really convicted in their teachings right now it's become it's become more sterile more uniform uh the way the game is taught and how it's processed back then was a little bit more individualistic and there was some great, great arguments and it was, it really led to our success. But um, so because of what Gene said to me that day, every year I'd go after that, I would consciously be aware of, you know, how's this going? Am I communicating well enough? Um, is this is the trust factor been built, et cetera. So it came from that one comment. 
obviously your successes with the Cubs are going mm-hmm. to lead you to not have to pay for a whole lot of uh, meals on the north side for the rest of your life. I got to tell you, it pissed me off to learn about just how you were treated by Theo Epstein and the Cubs heading into that final season that you had with the franchise. Did it hurt you uh, the way that you were treated by Theo where he was essentially micromanaging you by bringing up a memo based on player exit interviews from the previous season? Well, honestly, it didn't ang- it didn't anger me at the time. I thought, OK, maybe we're on to something or maybe I do. Um, I was not evaluating myself properly. That was my original thought. Um so when I went there to to hear all this, uh, of course it was disappointing. Of course I didn't I didn't see it coming. I didn't recognize that whatsoever. So again, you know, uh, keep an open mind. You're, these guys are trying to teach you something, possibly. So listen, uh, and I did. And I went back. I bought the uh, uh, was it Dummies Millennials for Dummies, and I read that. And that as I'm reading that, I'm thinking to myself, you know what? You connect with I connect with a lot of people. It doesn't matter your age, and I've never been. Uh, intimidated or, or concerned about that. Eh. So I read it and I, and I tried to absorb it as much as I can. But by the middle of the season, I realized it was not true. It was not all of the stuff that I had been told was told in, in an emotional moment at the end of a really difficult season. And, you know, I, I was not included. I mean, it was just stuff that was thrown in my direction. So anyway, it's something you need constructive criticism. I was, I was listening to it and I took it in. I really did try to to alter some things, but at by like I said, by the midpoint, I knew it was uh, incorrect, and then it was too late for me to really um, step it back and 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 really try to reinstitute what I'd been doing before, and so I just tried to make it work. That was it. It's been said before that managers are hired to be fired. This book says that you do want to manage again. What would you consider the right situation for you, Joe? The right situation has to be somebody I'm totally philosophically aligned with, um, somebody that recognizes that baseball and a human being is first and analytics numbers are second. Um, It has to be uh, a built process where, just based on what I just said, that there'd be a certain time of the day when people would not be permitted in the clubhouse. Uh, Baseball people only and definitely right after the game, please stay away. Don't come back to the next morning if there's something you really want to rehash. It's just it's gotten to the point now, and you're watching the games, I'm sure, right now, too, that it's obvious where things are. And I'm a prescriptor, by the way. I do write out my game. That's another Gene Mock thing, before, during, and after. Hmm. But I do it myself, and I, I put up my bullpen according to what I believe before the game, how it should work. And, of course, with the input of my pitching coach and my bullpen coach. But theory and reality are two different things, man. It gets blown up. And part of the theory may be that, you intend to take somebody out after four or five innings, but all of a sudden, man, this guy's on a roll and we have a nice lead here. So I could just be cautious, but give this guy an opportunity to become great as an example. So philosophically aligned, uh, real baseball first. I want an all-star group of coaches that I get to pick this time. What's happening in the game today. Um, everybody else picking your coaches for you. I, I just brief, recently, I had a, a phone call a group is doesn't even have a manager and they're looking for a hitting coach. So it just, it indicates that that to me indicates, um, you know, we'll pick the coaches and you come in here and manage it. I, I had this thought, I talked to my agent, uh, one of my agents yesterday, Tommy Tanzer. And I said, I think we might be trending towards baseball, having a head coach that wears a headset. I really do. I mean, it, it is, it, it is. I mean, I, I really believe there's people that would like that. Whereas you could have your analytical group upstairs, almost like an offensive and defensive coordinator, 
and it's permitted on both sides. It's just a uh, hard line into each side. And, um, and maybe, you know, the, all the conversations we monitor so that you know that you're not doing anything illegal, but it's gotten to that point where it's going to go on from manager to middle manager to head coach, I think. And, and they're going to have all kinds of influence coming um, from up above. I don't think that's a reach. Boy, headsets will be a real shame, but I, I'm not discounting it because you are one of the uh, the most forward-thinking people in the history of the sport. You are one of the first people to employ a shift. You did so on King Griffey Jr. actually got him to uh, try and bunt for a hit. He ended up uh, getting out in that at bat. That's pretty legendary. So I have to finish this interview, Joe, by asking you one final question based on uh, just how progressive you are as a thinker in life and in baseball. Is it time to let the computers call balls and strikes? No, here's what I'd like to do. Uh, and actually, I got this from uh, a player. I don't know if he wants me to mention his name, so I won't right now. But I thought it was brilliant. Um, yeah, incorporate the robotic ball and strike, but it's not to have the umpire um, say ball or strike based on uh, this little beep in his ear. But if the, if the ball was a strike or the strike was a ball that the voice in the ear says, hey, you missed that one, tighten it up there or open it up there. I think it'd be better served in that way where the umpire still is autonomous and calling the game and he's just getting direction. Hey, you're hitting, you're hitting, right? And you have a hitting coach in there. All of a sudden you're doing something that totally wrong from what you guys have been talking about. You know it, he knows it. You come in after the at-bat and the guy says, hey, come on, man, you just, we just talked about that. Or the pitcher, same thing, gets off track. Come on, man, we just talked about that. Umpire, come on, man, we talked about that. Uh, tighten it up or open it up a little bit. I think that'd be interesting, more interesting. I, I just, the more... The more technology involved, uh, the less emotion involved. I believe everything is like a foregone conclusion. Oh, what is, what does the uh, computer have to say? What does technology have to say? And we just relent to that. Can't stand it. So, like a home plate Jiminy Cricket, then, huh? Yeah. How about it? I mean, I, I, I do. Right. Let's have to call it that. That's cool. <laughs> He is the legendary Joe Madden. The new book is so good. Whether you're a fan of baseball or just a fan of philosophy, uh, it checks so many different boxes off. It's called The Book of Joe, Trying Not to Suck at Baseball and Life. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Joe, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this very enjoyable book. I appreciate it, and thank you, man, because you really did research. Uh, your questions are outstanding, and I really appreciate the time. Appreciate it. Man. My pleasure. Great job. Joe. Great Take job. Care. Thank you. All right. Bye. Thank you to Gentleman Jesus to the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for hanging out. You can watch, listen, learn, and connect for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day.